My name's Sam Taylor and I'm here with Tim McCourt and we're uh, in the very beautiful home of Michael Schlingman who's kindly invited us over to talk to him about his life and career in animation. Um, when did you get started in animation, Michael? Uh, well, I, technically I got started at college. There was no animation course at the college I went to in Münster in Germany and so a friend of mine who now works at Disney and me decided to do a pop promo for a controversial German song as our diploma. And that's, and, but there was no animation course, it was all self-taught and we used a, not even an EOS but just a, a umatic editing system by okay. just doing single frame edits from a camera right onto tape. Okay. And that's, when, when was that? That was 1989. Okay. Wow. And, uh, and then we showed the film to Hans Bacher, who okay. at the time, well he was in Germany at the time but he just finished working on uh, Roger Rabbit. And he liked it and said, I'll get you in contact with Richard Williams, he's looking for assistance. And so Andreas and me, like the... My, Andreas Dejan? No, Andreas Wetterterhorn, who is known at Disney as the little Andreas, okay. <laughs> I guess because he's younger. And um, we went over and saw Dick and basically got the job on the day he was recruiting for The Thief and the Cobbler. Okay, so you showed him the video, the yeah. background that you made? Yeah. And a couple of portfolios and other things that we did at college. And how did he respond? He personally looked at it. Didn't yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, we actually went into the little office at 138 Royal College Street and uh, sat down in front of the, the cabinet that had all the Oscars. And I think there were about 200 awards in the cabinet, wow. uh, including the three Oscars. Wow. And, uh, and then got basically sent upstairs, got introduced to a couple of people, then to Dick. And he just looked at the film, um, had a quick talk with us and said, when can you start? And we said in about two weeks, and so basically we went back to Germany, packed our things, and moved over here um, pretty much within two weeks. And had you heard of Richard Williams before you went over there? Yes, I mean, uh, Andreas collected tons of animation stuff, and uh, Hans Bacher once gave him a, um, a showreel, a, a Richard Williams showreel, which had, I mean, there were several showreels. There was one live action animation combined, there was one that was just classical animation, um, and, um, and I just, I just loved it because until that point I only knew TV animation and I knew Disney and uh, here was somebody who was doing pretty much any style you could think of. I mean the, the old Shell campaign, The Tempest was, well it looks like oil paintings, I don't know if they were oil paintings, they were probably gouache paintings, but they're paintings in movement and then he did that whole crayon thing for the um, Harlequin suites which they looked like live drawings then coloured in with crayons and really well done. And so I just thought, well if I can work for that guy, you know, That'll be a good start. And, and what was the connection with, with Hans Becker? How did that uh, come about? Uh, well, the interesting thing about Hans was that Andreas had been in contact with Hans because Hans was a Disney fan and had visited the Mad Tea Party, which was the company Hans had with Harald Zipperman, who died last year, yeah. and Uli Meyer. And, um, and so they knew each other, not professionally, but just on the side. So, I mean, Hans would give him copies of films that he'd gotten, bits of artwork, Andreas would spend the day, have a look at things, and because he was a proper Disney-est. And so he knew Hans quite well, and so he basically just rang Hans and says, would you mind looking at our stuff? And at the same time, Hans was teaching in Essen at the, at the graphic design school, right. and two of his pupils, Dietmar Kremer and Holger Leier, Dietmar's back in Germany now, Holger is in, in, uh, at Pixar, um, they had just been um, recommended by Hans to go to London uh, and to work for Dick. And so basically we just got together. So we actually got a house together in Kentish Town okay. and we lived for the first um, 
Well, a year or a year and a half. We actually lived together in one house. It was a little German household. Uh-huh. It sounds like there's quite a few Germans uh, working in the animation industry. There are. There, I mean, they, they were back then as well, but I just think... I mean, one of the reasons was that in Germany at that time, there was no real animation industry. I mean, so far so that at college, I was always referred to as the guy who does the comics. And I kept pointing out that I'm not doing comics. I, I do animation, and even though that may sound sort of like pea counting there's a huge difference so it was just drawing little men and uh-huh. no one cared for it and you had a couple of reasonably cheap tv studios mm. but that was it and then the moment i moved to england small companies started coming out of the ground like uh, ms films and um the, there was iron hamburg which i forgot the name of but uh, there was the, the werner films which, like there were mo- movies cinema movies, feature films, made for the German audience. Mm. But uh, then all of a sudden... Oh, the Werner films. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so basically, when I left Germany, there was no German animation industry. There really wasn't anything. So if you were interested in animation, you had to go to London or, or but, to the States. But it's amazing that there was so many people who um, came out of that and became so influential within Disney and those big organizations like Harold Sieberman and mm-hmm. Andreas Deja and uh, the other people that you mentioned. Yeah. It's quite impressive. So, um, when you was making your this graduation film, was yeah. it like your intention to impress someone like uh, Richard Williams, or was like what was what was mm. your kind of goal when you was making it? It was a showreel piece to get a job. Not really. No, I just I just wanted to do. I mean, I, I did illustration and graphic design. I actually worked in a graphic design studio while I was studying ah, to sort okay. of basically pay for my studies. Even yeah. though in Germany it's not very expensive, and. Um, I had I just had an enormous love for animation, and it was something I never thought I'd be able to do because what I saw, as far as the, the amount of output and the quality of output that you see at Disney, I just thought these people are very special people, and they're sort of a class of their own, and I can't draw well enough to ever be part of them. Mm. And of course, when you and and so Andreas and I just decided if we do a diploma together, we might as well make a film. Yeah, and uh, he he chewed he. The choice of the music was his. It's a guy who's basically a German singer-songwriter who's quite boring and mainstream. Mm. Uh, but he did one song called Go Forth and Multiply, which is criticism on the overpopulation of the earth, um, a, a little bit of a stab against the church. Yeah. And it was um, not broadcast in Bavaria, because they're very conservative oh, really? there. Oh, was and it so like an official music video? It was a, no, no, it wasn't oh. an official. It's just oh. we just did it and okay. then sent it to him and he invited us to a concert. Really? So, yeah. Oh, wicked. Uh, and, uh, did he endorse the music video at all? Not really, no. Okay. I mean, I don't think he had anything to do with it. But it went down well because somebody from WDR came and actually um, got our permission to screen it on the Friday night after our diploma exhibition on um, a 7.30 slot on the third German program, which really? was, a, was a cultural slot. So it went out nationwide three days after <laughs> our diploma. So have you still got it? I, I don't. Oh, I must have it somewhere. It must be in the attic or something. When was the last time it, you watched it? Oh, I think 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I'd be horrendously embarrassed by now. No, it's funny but, uh, looking back at stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Andrea still has a copy, so I might just have to contact him and see if I can get a, get a copy. It's interesting that you're talking about um, uh, seeing all this stuff going on somewhere else and then thinking that that's done by very special people who you'll never be that good. Because I think that I felt very similar to mm-hmm. that when I was coming up. Um, like when I was in school, I just imagined that was in another place and I don't know whether I, where I ever would have got the confidence to... Uh, feel like I'd get to that level at some point. You feel like that's something that's innate, not something that's learned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I 
kind of feel like that is uh, I kind of feel like that's why certain crafts are very localized in certain places like um, Britain for example has a lot of bands for a small country and stuff and I think that being surrounded by other people who are doing the same thing even if you know that they're just you know couple of hundred miles away or something you Mm -hmm. kind of you can you can imagine that you could be like them or that you can aspire to something like that and that's why I think it's so amazing that you guys were in Germany and somehow you managed to penetrate that world which was completely outside of your own country. Mm -hmm. It was mildly uncomfortable when I started because of course I had no idea what was expected of me right but very very quickly I found that the image I had of your animator, the, your talented animator who could just draw a sketch in seconds, was actually not true because uh, all the people that I was surrounded by were hardworking people that were noodling and noodling until they got it right. And so so the idea that you have to spontaneously be able to lay something down, I very quickly found out was not the case. Well, not always the case. I have since met people who do that and who yeah. work like that. And I think I have started to work more like it. Like I. I managed to get scenes out if I draw very, very quickly. Within you know half an hour, I get the bones together, and they look very scruffy, and they're literally just gesture drawings. But I, but back then, you know, on the thief, where everything was so meticulously crafted, um, it was all very different. It wasn't the the wild artist who makes makes marks on paper. These mm. were people who were they were whittling away I think that's a really important thing to like puncture that ideal of just like talent being a thing that people have and not being something that you have to chip away at long term and and, and feeling like you can eventually get to that if you work hard enough it's it's interesting that like because I you know I think most people or everyone who knows you would agree that you're like a very talented animator but it's nice to see that like you've um that you you thought that you know of someone as well and like in, in that mm. you've actually crafted to get to that level and you're saying now I'm able to work like that and yeah. maybe it's because very early on you realised that that illusion was shattered you know mm. like I think that that's what held me back for such a long time. I think yeah. it would be really um, I think it would be really amazing to get people who are very good successful animators and draftsmen to actually put up their first drawings and stuff <laughs> mm-hmm. when they first started doing animation. I bet some of them would be just depressingly good though. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I think I've got my first drawing somewhere here. Oh, the really, fir- first really. one, it was, if I find it, I'll show it to you later, okay. but I don't know yeah. where it is. Your house is, is an amazing museum to animation stuff. Like. <laughs> I know, man. I was going up the stairs to the toilet and I was just like, oh my God, there's like a layout from... Uh, is Totoro. Right? Yeah, yeah. I've got a whole scene in my front room. I'll show you later. Because it's the I, I I met this girl called Junko Aoyama who was working for Uli. Yeah. And I kept talking to her how much I love Totoro and and Miyazaki's films. And yeah. she, who was originally from Japan, said that friends of hers were working at Studio Ghibli. And so she visited Japan and apparently just walked in and said, "I have a friend in London who likes Totoro. Have you got anything I could give him?" And they pulled. The, apparently the artwork pack off the shelf that they'd given to the publisher that made the book The Art of Totoro and so I've got some of the, the uh, oh my god and, and, and she just put it in a parcel and sent it to me what uh, together with a bunch of copies VHS copies of the films without subtitles 
um, from Laserdisc. Oh and so I, I had the first small collection of, I mean, I remember watching Poco Rosso for the first time and melting. <laughs> yeah, but, so. you're, but ju- I think just that walk up the stairs kind of encapsulates your, like the breadth of your taste yeah, in yeah. animation. I mean, there's like an original Tom Gould drawing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right? yes, yeah, I love Tom And there's Gould. a... Yeah, Stromboli. There's Stromboli. <laughs> and that is amazing because that, I remember that scene so well because it's when he bites the, yeah, yeah. the coin and it's like, it looks like the the key that the rest of the animation was drawn around. Yeah, you know, like there was a wild story behind that because it was Uli's birthday, I think it was his 43rd birthday or something, yeah. and I turned up his, at his studio and he'd already done some pre-drinking, <laughs> so he was nicely nicely jolly, yeah. and I gave him a bottle of champagne and, and a book I bought for him and said, like, happy birthday, Uli, and he went, thank you, thank you, here's a present for you, and he just gave me that drawing. <laughs> Wow. Oh my god! And I asked him the next day. I rang him and I said, "Were you serious, or, or was it just because you're in such a jovial mood?" And he said, "No, no, no, I'm serious." That's and where did he get it from? Huh? I think he got it from. Um, he got a lot of drawings from um, Milt Carl okay. when he went over and, and sort of learned from him. He basically worked in the same room for a while to just hmm. be taught. And, really? uh, and Milt Carl did gave him tons of cells and drawings and signed them. And I think this may have been one of them. Is that the Milt Carl drawing? No, no, it's a, it's Bill Tytler. Oh right, right. But it's um, I think he got it from Milt Carl. Oh right. Because <laughs> he used to have a whole wall full of Milt Carl cells and drawings all signed. Jesus That's absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think probably uh, most people know your work. Uh, will know your work online under the pseudonym of Felix Sputnik, yes. is that right? Yes. Where, where does that come from? <laughs> I don't know, it's, uh, I, I always, like, I had a friend whose name was Klaus, and he always introduced himself as Felix to everybody, yeah. and I always regretted not doing that myself. <laughs> <laughs> My father was called Felix, okay, and Felix okay. Lingman, and I love I, I loved the word, word Felix, yeah. because, because it means the, the lucky one, doesn't it? And, and uh, so when I came over here, I just thought, damn, I should have just introduced myself as Felix to everybody, so that would now be my proper nickname. <laughs> and I didn't, so I, I decided to do it online. And um, the word Sputnik, I don't know, I always, I was always fascinated with the early um, space name. exploration. <laughs> yeah, I think it means, does it mean comrade? I, I, might, I might be wrong here, so I don't quote no me on this. But, uh, yeah. it's, uh, don't worry, it's not yeah. really on the podcast. <laughs> <or anything. laughs> but it um, sounds quite nice. <laughs> yeah, it does. No, it does. It's a good name. Has it, is, is that ever led to any confusion? Has anybody ever been like, oh, we're waiting for Felix Sputnik, who the hell are you, Michael Schlingler? No, 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 not really. I mean, okay. it quite often happens that people, on my website, there's a little thing at, at the bottom that says Fences, Felix yeah, Sputnik sometimes. or... Michael Schlingman has his passport claims, right. and most a lot of people send me emails and actually say hello, Mike. So oh, okay. they, they they figure out quite quickly, and if they don't, I'll I'll just answer back as as Felix. <laughs> so you uh, so you work as a freelance animator. Mostly right? yes. I mean at the moment all the time. Yeah. yeah, but you have some experience in the past working on feature films, quite a few feature films mm-hmm. actually. Uh, I've got Paranorman, yes, story artist, yeah, uh, the Pirates, yes, uh, Tale of Despero, Corpse Bride, Valiant, Road to El Dorado, Quest for Camelot, Space Jam, and the wow. Thief and the Cobbler. Mm. Wow, uh, start at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely the Thief and the Cobbler is probably the one that I want to ask you about yes. the most. What exactly did you start as an assistant on that? Uh, yeah, so I, I mean, the first thing I did is I assisted Brent O'Dell, who later worked at Passion. And um, I did, I think, elephants, elephants being hoisted up on chains to platforms in the, the war machine. And that didn't last very long. I think Dick quit, quickly found out that I had a reasonably good technical mind. And I was then given all the very boring but very technical scenes. Like there's a, there's a scene where you go through the city and up the minarets and the minaret changes in perspective and you have a look at the golden balls. 
there's a scene where you pan from uh, the city across a bit of desert and then up the vulture tower, which is a big tower with a vulture on top, then inside the beak up a staircase and then into Zigzag's room. And all of that was a combination of just a, a 3D flight animated in proper perspective and things like uh, moving pieces of artwork and background that then suddenly revealed the fact like you had a bit of animated staircase that came up to the corner of a wall. The wall wouldn't be animated, the wall would be a piece of artwork that you zoomed in and panned at the same time, behind which the real background would appear. Wow. Uh, and because you came from a very dark to quite a light environment, the moment the first light from the torch came past the wall, everything else was sort of cast into silhouettes, so the takeover was invisible, so you couldn't actually see. And so most of these scenes I got to do. So there's a flight into the countryside where you go past paddy fields and through mountains and stuff. And you animate it? Yeah, yeah it's all animated, single how frame. Long, how long after you was assisting did you make that kind of jump? That was very quick. I think within three months we got promoted really? to junior well, animators. And uh, the, interesting, the other interesting thing is that because we were all... Um, like all the animators on the main project mm. got given a lead animator credit when the film was taken away from Dick and um, and uh, finished by the Completion Bond Company f as two different versions. And then I think all the other people that subsequently worked for the Bear Company, for Dale Bear and stuff, and worked on it, just only got animator credits. So despite not being a lead animator on that film, on IMDb I have a credit as lead animator. Oh, really? So, so I, just, it's, I was only an animator, oh, okay. but I was an animator earlier on than some other people. So. What, what's the, what would be the difference on that project as lead and just animator? I don't really know. I mean, there were a couple of people like Neil Boyle and stuff who worked on uh, Roger Rabbit, uh, who basically would look over other people's work and okay. say, this is not how I would do it. And they were most certainly lead animators. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I was later lead on Valiant and uh, Tale of Despero, and there really is administrative administrative work as well as animating. So you're in charge of a group, okay. And you have to basically, and they're all fantastic animators. They're young, they're mostly French, and they they animate you against the wall, but they want to shine with every scene, and mm. you can't do that. The sequence needs to all together, and it can't just have highlights. And and so that's the funny thing where you become a lead animator when you're no longer quite as good as the animators <laughs> that work for you but you, you're capable of doing one thing you're capable of sort of reining them back right, so, right, right, right. but I definitely wasn't a lead on, on The Thief uh, how, how long did you uh, work on The Thief and Cobbler before it got taken over by the Bellbox? I think it was around a year and a half Okay. It might be a little bit longer because what I quit before it got taken away from him okay. and I quit partially and I have no idea where I had the, the balls from because I it's nothing I would have done later. It's Dick at some point started to get pissed off with me. He at some point said he needs to richly burn my kite because I used to go kite flying at lunchtime. Never, not never during work time. He wants, he just to, buy, like, he wants to wanted to burn your kite. Yeah, uh, well, uh, he said sacrificial burning of Michael's kite was was in order, and but that was of course just a joke. But, yeah, yeah. but there was more to it than that. It was the whole thing that anybody who was seen to have fun uh, that just wasn't on. You weren't working hard enough if you had fun, and I was still having fun, and uh, and so he would start to poo poo my work, and I would I did a lot of things that there's a whole sequence where you go down a staircase um, which Dean Roberts animated, and no one in the studio could figure out how to have a cycle of enlargements on a photocopier based on a single spiral that would loop without a kick in the speed. And everybody had tried it, and because I studied maths and physics at high school, um, I just said, give it to me. And so I would work these things out. I'd calibrate scenes if Roy Nesbitt was too busy. 
And none of this was allowed to get through to Dick because I was warned that if he knows that I did it, he wouldn't approve the scene. So I did it all without taking the credit for it. And, and in the end, I just thought, this is, this is so ridiculous where people were crawling past past his uh, his seat to ask me things and I just and I I was really cocky I just basically said to Neil uh, Neil, uh, Ian uh, Ian Cook the production coordinator that uh, I think the studio can work just as well without me and I quit and luckily Dick was very nice to me because what usually happened is that if you quit you had to be out by four o'clock that afternoon with a box in your hand and the, the key code was changed when I left I was allowed to to do my remaining two weeks and Dick was unbelievably friendly to me. He would ask me questions, he would, like all of a sudden all of that was gone. I guess he just couldn't ask if I wanted to stay, but mm. but he was very nice. So I, you know, no hard feelings there. Yeah. And then I just, I knocked on Uli's door one day and said, um, I've done it, I've quit. And he went, I can't believe it. What are you doing next weekend? And I said, nothing. He said, you want to fly to New York? <laughs> and so then I started doing commercials, basically. So Uli Meyer's studio was based in New York at that time? No, no, no. They were based in, uh, in Soho, in a road that no longer exists, Oxford Circus Avenue, which was a tiny road that's now in the middle of a shopping center. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, we had lots of jobs for such and such in New York. And Uli was tired of going because he'd gone so many times. And he needed somebody who you know, could represent the company and go for him. And I'd never been to New York, and so I... You know, oh, wicked. That's brilliant. I loved it. So the, so the experience of working at uh, Richard Williams' place was... I didn't see the documentary that was made recently, but you mm-hmm. spoke at the uh, yeah. screening in mm-hmm. uh, the Barbican in London. Um, but uh, was, was the ex- I heard the experience of it was like, just very intense for a lot of people, a lot of late hours. People yeah. were doing uh, a hell of a lot of work for the love of it, for no money, and then obviously... The fact that it was never completed mm-hmm. led to some hard feelings on those people's parts. Or... Yeah, I mean, I it was very hard. I mean, it is. I don't think I'd be able to do it now. I mean, I was twenty five, and uh, there were compulsory sixty hours a week, and uh, and that basically meant and and some weird things happened. Like I had a uh, I had a friend over one one week, and because I wanted to some spend spend some time with him, and we would then go on holiday back to Germany. And he'd give me a lift, and we want to leave on that weekend. So I did uh, the extra four hours every night um, during the week, and then I also worked a full weekend of twenty hours. And so I basically did an eighty-hour week, and then spent some time in the evenings the next week. And when Friday came, and I didn't fill in my weekend overtime sheet, I was asked into the production office, and I was asked what was going on, and I said, "Well, I'm actually going away Saturday morning, so I can't do the overtime. But I, don't worry, I've done it all in advance." And I was told that you can't do overtime in advance, and they didn't like my attitude. And I was forced to uh, cancel the trip. I mean, my friend was in his car, so we went on Monday instead, because that's when holiday started, yeah. and worked the weekend. And, and so, so there were some mad things that went on, and mm. uh, it was quite tiring. But as a 25-year-old, you mm. can do it all. And I don't think it's very um, productive, though, because there were weeks where I was so tired on the weekends that you just sit there and you just push your way through and then you're not looking forward to Monday either because mm. you, you push your way yeah. through it again I don't think you're any faster you are if you do it for a month mm. like if, if yeah. something needs to be finished and and for four weeks you have to do weekends that's mm. fine but if you have to do it on a regular basis for in this case three quarters of a year um, I don't think you, you do a 40 hour week in 60 hours that's what happens yeah it's funny because like we were talking to Aya who's um, a Japanese animator and she was saying that um 
in Japan they work incredibly late, but then they get in really late as well. Like, and I'd always seen in the making of like DVDs in Japan, mm. like they people work until like six o'clock in the morning or you know four o'clock in the morning. I was thinking, fucking hell, and then what do they go home and then they get back in? But then they don't come in until after lunchtime. Mm. It's just like, but why don't you just do those hours in the morning? And then yeah. I, I just, it's sort of at, at some point it it sort of becomes redundant all the extra time you're doing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. And, and, and why was everybody doing all that time? Was it because there wasn't other jobs available or they really believed in the project or Richard Williams was such a... Um, iconic figure that everybody wanted to please or it's a combination I mean for starters uh, Dick didn't uh, he didn't actually uh, that's, that's the tea if you I was going to get the oh fantastic yeah, yeah I hope there's enough in there that's um, Dick didn't hire any very experienced animators. There were a couple. There was Dave Price Brown, who was quite experienced, and some of the people that that were left over from uh, from Roger Rabbit. Okay. But a lot of the people he got in were youngsters that were either straight out of college and short promise, because he basically thought that Bluth and and to a degree the later Disney um, system had poisoned animation. And I sort of agree with him, whereby. I mean, you look at some of the Bluth animation, it's basically all Disney takes, but then exaggerated. So it's basically, it's cartooning the cartoony. Okay. And he didn't like that. He wanted people to uh, to not even have a particular style in mind, because this was a film that stuck to his style. So he liked young people, and he basically told them all, this is going to be the most significant animated film uh, that'll ever come out, or at least that'll come out, you know, for the foreseeable future. And we did all believe in it. I mean, I remember seeing the battle scene for the first time mm -hmm. on a, uh, just a small moviola, so a screen that was roughly the size of a postcard and a half. And I, I didn't even know what the film looked like. I mean, I, I'd seen his commercials, I expected something quite sophisticated and possibly quite realistic. Uh, what I didn't expect was something that was very illustrative, very flat and very quirky. And then this battle scene happened where like all the perspectives were wrong but amazing mm. uh, the amount of double and triple and quadruple exposure gave the whole thing sort of a, a luminous feel I honestly had never seen anything like it in my life and I, think I, just, I mean I've only seen the re-cobbled cuts yes. which is online how true is that to the intention of the original film it's pretty good it's I mean bits have been added and there is of course now a chance that the um, original cut that Dick um, still had is going to come out on DVD or Blu-ray because after the screening in LA, I think the Amer American Academy is interested in helping to make that possible. So there might be a chance that very soon you'll see a version that's just Dick's drawings as storyboards and animatics and whatever was done on the film, but none of the stuff that were done later, which there are portions of which are still in the recovered cut. But it like. Um what, wasn't it like a very small percentage of the film was actually ever completed, though? Yeah, it's. I mean, there's a fantastic thing in the documentary where Philip Pepper said um, that... Um, he, he said, we noticed that we had done 95 minutes of a 90-minute film and we hadn't started the story yet. And that sort of sums it up, which basically means that there's a vast amount of footage. I think if you take the rough line tests of The Witch and all the stuff that Art Babbitt, Babbitt had done together... Mm. I think it's 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 getting towards two hours of material, um, of which I think in the recoupled cut, I guess under an hour is actually in there. Mm. Um, and if you finish that film properly, i.e. did all the storytelling bits so that they actually worked, other bits would have had to be trimmed as well. Mm. So I guess that's about half the film really isn't done. But 
as far as time's concerned, I mean, there's more footage than there is running length. So <laughs> that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So he, as far as I understand it, he was that you guys were animating when and the whole film wasn't even completely storyboarded. Yeah, that that's right? that's correct. And I, I think the Completion Bond Company, who was they're the guys that basically take over if you can't finish the film. Yeah. Um, they demanded that um, that Warner Brothers got uh, a storyboard of the whole film, so they they actually saw how long it was and what was happening. And so for the last. I think about three or four months of us animating on the film, Dick would not animate, but just sit and with magic markers and um, and pencils, um, in color, very very nicely storyboard the remainder of the film. That was and and I think uh, when the thing finally collapsed, that was just after he delivered his cut, including his storyboards and whatever footage there was. Mm. Uh, I wasn't there at the time, so I think I left about two months earlier. Maybe three months earlier, but um, did you get a sense of that happening when you was there? He, no, we all thought that Dick could finally pull it off and and get a storyboard that was uh, interesting enough, um, and you know get the the guys to agree to keep going. Mm. But I think the problem was that we were coming to the end of when the film was supposed to be delivered anyway, and it was certainly wasn't done. Mm. And uh, I got, I mean. Um, Hans Bacher at the time was working for Amblin and he rang me that morning when the studio closed down and said, I have heard rumours, they're going to take the film away from Dick today. At which point I rang one of the guys in the studio and told him what I'd heard. Mm. And he said, I don't think so. And then he rang me back half an hour later and said, they've just announced a meeting after lunch. If they close down the studio, can you pick us up in the evening? Because of course they had tons of artwork and like Mm. just their own drawings and books and stuff. And they... They just thought if they if they lock up the studio, mm. you know, they have to leave all of that behind. Mm. So I did a I did a mercy run that night, and it, because of course they did close down the studio. Wow! And uh, Holger, the other friend of mine, wasn't even there. He was on holiday, mm. and he came home to find a letter on his doorstep that says that your uh, um, your desk has been destroyed. No, no, no. Just basically, basically your contract with. Uh, with uh, Richard Williams' productions has been terminated, and he thought, "What have I done?" <laughs> I was totally unaware that the studio had closed down. And and so, what is the uh, the general consensus among the people that you know who worked on that? Was it that Richard Williams was irresponsible with uh, that film, or that he that it was very unfair that it was taken away from him? No, it's it's half of each. Yeah. the The problem with Dick is that Dick is a total perfectionist, and uh, he would have probably produced an amazing film had somebody given him another 20 years. But that's not <laughs> how you make films in Hollywood. So so that there's no chance in hell that given the two years that he was given, he would have finished that film. And it's not because it's impossible to do. It's just because he wouldn't let anything go. And, um, and so I just think that there's an incom- incompatibility between the way modern films are made and the way he worked. He'd worked on it for 25 years... And he wanted another 20 years, really. And uh, this was a chance, but his modus operandi just wasn't that way. And uh, I wonder, I, I mean, I would have loved to have seen, I mean, it would come out now, roughly, well, <laughs> five years ago, but it's, uh, I would have loved to have seen what it could have been like. But just imagine if it came out now, like, how weird it would have looked, because yes. bits of it would have been shot in, like, 19... 19- 75 yeah, yeah, yeah bits of it would have been animation started in, like, in 64 that's that's when he started the whole thing 1964 Christ. the but, year I was born but he, <laughs> but he shot some of the um, but he did you know shot some of the cells and stuff like quite early on wouldn't 
didn't he, right? Was... Yeah, I mean, when I arrived there in 1990, uh, about half an hour of the film was already on film. And so oh, I think that this... And that was coloured and... Yeah, I think this all happened even before um, Roger Rabbit. So mm. this would have happened in the early 80s where mm. a lot of the War Machine stuff was done. And because it all started with the Nasruddin stories, the Mullah Nasruddin. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and there's hardly anything Except left of them. Thousand Nights. No, Nasruddin is a... I've got the books here. It's, okay. a, it's basically it's a sort of Sufi teaching tool. It's a... It's the fool teacher. The, uh, Nazarene is basically a mullah who, who does ridic ridiculous things. But in the process of reviewing the ridiculous things, you find out that there is a better way of doing it. Okay. So it's that you know the typical thing where, what are you doing? Oh, I've lost my uh, my earring. It says, have you lost it around here? No, I lost it in the house. Why are you looking out here? It's too dark in the house. That's the sort of logic. Yeah. Um, and. Um, and Idris Shah and Ali Omar Shah, his brother, had the rights to these stories. Oh, and Idris Shah actually wrote them all. Yeah. And then uh, they fell out with each other and took all the material away, including the, the ability to use any of the animation. With one exception, the, the thief character, who Dick had just invented and put into the illustrations, was a character that they weren't interested in because he wasn't part of the stories. So he was allowed to keep the character. So the styling of that particular drawing and that particular character then became the Thief and the Cobbler. Mm. And it has little bits and pieces. It has the sort of the fool that can teach you something type thing is still in there somewhere. It's like, you know, uh, and um, yeah. It seems to me that um, there was, that it was quite influential on a bunch of things were made afterwards. Um, Aladdin. Aladdin, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it obviously did have quite a big influence on that, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a fantastic sequence at the end of um, Persistence of Vision yeah. where they just literally run a, a scene from The Thief and then a scene from Aladdin. And, and the other thing is, of course, that a lot of the people that worked on Aladdin, like Eric Goldberg and Andreas Dea and uh, oodles of other people, worked in London on Roger Rabbit because Disney sent them over. And so Dick is an enthusiastic person and uh, he would have immerse them in that stuff and most certainly try to recruit them mm. you know for 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 work in the future um so i i think that but i i don't think that it's, it's a necessarily um, a rip-off it's i no. think it's just a you're just influenced like you, mm. you know nobody lives in a vacuum yeah. um, and i think the, the the biggest influence it, it had on uh, secret of kells which um, in spirit is almost the the child of the thief and the cobbler because it's based on an existing style the book of kells mm -hmm. whereas dix was based on persian miniatures mm -hmm. was sticking to all the weirdnesses that that style held i.e no proper perspective flat colors and textures and patterns and um did it successfully and um, i thought it had a, i thought it was a pretty pretty coherent story yeah. it was a really good film actually. yeah i liked it very much but i just i definitely felt it was influenced and even the fact that those two guys i think worked on it for 12 years before they got it commissioned so it's it's only half the time that yeah. Dick worked on it, but it's, a, it's sort of similar. You did it. So after that um, experience of working on it, you went into commercials. Yeah. And then how long did you work in commercials before you got back into features again? Oh, I don't really... I mean, I think it was only f three or four years because I worked for Uli. Then I left and worked for Passion after Andy Knight left and they needed somebody to um, do sort of... 2D directing, mm. did a couple of, uh, one, one campaign for um, Clark's Shoes. Oh yeah. And uh, then suddenly got coaxed back by Uli because Uli got the deal to do 20 something minutes for Space Jam. Oh right. And yeah, was yeah. recruiting and he basically got a team of 112 people together in, really? in two studios in Soho and we did, I 
don't know, it's, it's somewhere close to half an hour of the film. Wow. With Uli running an amazing ship. I mean, I, I've never seen him that enthusiastic because he knew where every scene was at any time. Right. And, um, and there were loads of animators and loads of people that used to work for Passion just came over, like um, Ken Morrissey and stuff. And that was great fun. I mean, the project... It was just a you know a, yeah. a long commercial basically, but yeah. the one thing that was nice is that they hadn't sorted out the script by the time that we all started, right. and so they they allowed us to animate whatever we wanted to just explore the characters. Right. So we were doing um, test cycles of skipping Bugs Bunnies, invent gags, have dribbling dribbling scenes, and yeah. uh, that was fantastic. I just loved it. So you we were allowed to do whatever we wanted um, for about. Four months, five months. Really? And then finally the whole thing kick-started properly and then we had six or seven months to finish the extra footage. To, to get half an hour done. Yeah. And wow. it was, it, it all worked and um, yeah, it was lo lovely. What's it, what's it, what half an hour? Was it like a chunk of the film? Uh, was there were like several sequences. Okay. Like uh, the, the tryout gym was all ours. The, okay. um, the first arrival in Toontown was all ours. Uh, a portion of the game was ours. Right, uh, okay. Little bits of Moron Mountain and it's... Uh, I, I can't even remember the sequences. It's amazing. I thought I'd forgotten it all. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we, we would get like seven or eight different sequences each five or six minutes long. Mm. So I remember seeing that film in the cinema because like, I was massively into Michael Jordan mm -hmm. in the 90s and like I loved Warner Brothers cartoons and when there was a Jordan uh, Warner Brothers film coming out, I just loved it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know how it's kind of regarded like by the animation community or whatever, but... I still really like it. I watched it the other day and I was like, I thought it was really good. That was like the perfect time as well. Like everybody yeah. loved Warner Brothers. Everybody yeah. was like, yeah. everyone loved Jordan. Just like met in the middle. I assume it was quite successful. Yeah, well. I think it was very yeah. successful. It's, it's surprising they didn't do like a sequel or whatever because... Well, there's a, there's a, uh, you know these things where you have a petition to the government? Right. There's a petition to the British government really? for uh, Mr. Cameron to ask Warner Brothers to do Space Jam 2. Really? I don't, I think it's slightly tongue-in-cheek. I've with, signed it. With LeBron James. It's, it's just because it was so good for the uh, London animation industry. Yeah, they yeah, want to do it again. So, yeah. It's, if, wow. Check it out. Check, just check out Petition uh, Space Jam 2. I'm sure it's still open. Oh, really? And, uh, it seems a little bit of a roundabout way to ask David Cameron <laughs> to ask that guy, to ask that guy. Yeah. Yeah. So had you, hadn't, had you animated Warner Brothers characters at that time before? Uh, I don't think so. No, I I've, I animated a couple of commercials with them afterwards, but okay. this was the first time just doing Warner Brothers. Characters. Yeah, I bet afterwards everyone probably wanted Warner Brothers yeah, yeah. characters in their commercials and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Uli did a couple. He did a one with um, uh, for Walker's Crisps oh, with yeah. I forgot the name of the footballer uh, Gary Lineker. Oh, Lineker. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Bugs Bunny, Bugs Bunny, and and Lola Bunny, and then we did one for a Spanish company uh, using uh, the Coyote and oh, yeah, the Roadrunner. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It's I, I mean, commercials are commercials. I know I prefer commercials these days that are a bit quirky and weirder, so mm. you can just try out new things. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So you did that Guinness ad uh, yes. with the with the hands. Did yeah. you direct that? Yeah. How did that come about? Well, that, that was weird because when I was at Warner Brothers working on the Unspeakable Quest for Camelot. Sorry, um, just to explain quickly that yeah. it's it's an advert where you've got your it's a it's a rostrum camera looking down at a table and you're moving your hand. Underneath it in a in uh, stop motion, uh, and it's all in black and white, and uh, you're just doing some like fun animation stuff with it. That's quite surprising and mm -hmm. well animated, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I, it, I when I was at Warner Brothers on the Quest for Camelot, I 
I got so bored every once in a while, uh, and we had the first computer line tester. Um, uh, what's it called? I think it was the Animal Line Test System. And um, you basically, you could leave your animation running, and it would just basically run full screen while nobody else was using the machine. So I decided that instead of just leaving an animation there, I would shut down my scene and then do a fun thing with my fingers, including like, for example, a Newton's Cradle where where you have a single finger sticking up, uh, one hand hits the other hand, you replace each uh, finger. So it looks like the finger actually travels across the top of your, uh, okay. your, your wrist. And, um, and I just thought I'd come up with two or three and that's it. And so every day after I did my line test, I would do one of those little things and then go around to every line test station and just call up the scene and have it running there as a, as a, as a cycle. So whoever came next would then see it and then have to close it down mm. and start a new one. And it didn't stop with three. I think I, I got to somewhere like 30 different uh, tricks. And then I converted them when I left to QuickTime movies. And one day I was taking them off a CD at Richard Purdom Studios when we were working on Mr. Bean. And they had a bunch of agency people over that looked over my shoulder and saw the things and liked it. And uh, th that, was, that was that basically. They just liked it and asked, could they have a copy? I gave them a copy. They went away and then about or five, four or five years later, they found me at Uli's studio what? and said... How long later? Four or five years. I mean, maybe it was three or four years, but oh. many, many years later. That's was, a long time in advertising. Yes, I was no longer working for uh, for the Purdoms. The studio no longer existed. And they just found me there and basically said, we've got a Guinness ad, do you want to do it? And so I said, sure. And and I actually meant most of the tricks that you see in the, in the uh, ad are... New again from the 25 I originally did at, at Warner Brothers. Really? Uh, and I think there's there's still more things that you can do with your fingers. They wanted a two-minute version, which I did. Then there's a 60-second cut-down, and then there was a, a St. Patrick's Day one as well, where my fingers do river dance, which is also online. If you, if, yeah. And did they all go out on telly? Yes. They went out on telly, and they also played, you know, in Charing Cross on the escalator, all oh, the monitors, really? yeah. they all played all the way down there. I, I actually have some footage somewhere of me going down on the escalator, just filming, like, 200 hands. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great, because um, you're, you're pretty inventive, like, with animation as well. Like, there's, you've done, like, a few, I mean, just, like, kind of, like, little, like, muck around kind of things. Mm -hmm. and, um, like, and, and it's... It's cool because they do pretty well online as well. Like, yes, that's true. Yeah. Like uh, Obama's elf. Uh, Obama's <laughs> elf blew my mind so last <laughs> night for the first time. I was wetting myself. Yeah, but it's got three million views on YouTube. Yeah, I know. Crazy. It like took that. three hours to make. Well, I mean, how long did the hand thing, the Guinness thing, take to make? Um, not very much. I think it's two weeks for the entire production schedule. So I basically I would just try things out and then cut them together, and then in some cases film them again. I mean, the biggest problem was I needed little bridges. So you have a trick that you do and you decide to put that trick uh, on either side or a particular trick on one side of a particular other trick. You then have to afterwards film the bridge that connects the two. Oh, yeah. So that took a while where I would just mark on the screen where they had to be <clears throat> and then just film the stuff. And we just had the same lighting each time. There was a green piece of cardboard underneath to cut, uh, basically to just color, color key the, the, the handout mm -hmm. if we needed to. And that was it. And that must have been a pretty lucrative job for you. I assume you got a director's fee and stuff. It like was. They actually, right? I got a buyout. It's the first time I've ever been paid on top of a job for something that I hadn't done. In this case, the right to use it. And uh, so, yeah, that was, that was a nice one. Mm. 
I mean, you know, not, not vast amounts, but yeah, but, but yeah. much better than just being paid your yeah. weekly fees. So I, I'd yes. love to see you do more and more of that stuff because I think you are like there's the other one where you're you're sort of uh, you've got a camera set up and you're sort of almost acting like you're pushing the yes. floor down with your foot either side and you kind yeah. of get this. Uh, it's like a boat. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Earthquaker. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there was quite popular. A friend of mine showed that to uh, a photographer in Canada mm. who went to a wedding, and she showed it to people online and asked them if they were interested to do it. And so they have a whole wedding party do that thing. Oh, really? And she made it part of their wedding video. Oh, wow. So, yeah. I, I think there's, that's a matter of time before someone sees that and sticks it in an advert as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I even do things that I don't, I don't go any further with. I mean, there's that looping thing for um, E4. Oh, I don't yeah. know if you've seen it where I'm just holding a sign in front of my face with the E4 oh, logo. that's so cool. Yeah, and, and I, I basically... Yeah, mattress, and I've actually, yeah. I've actually flash animated other versions of that, which all have to do with either uh, rotation or flipping top and bottom. So somebody, for example, jumping until they're in a crouched position, then you flip the entire thing over so that the entire jump becomes a sine curve. Oh, right, right. Or, or b- bouncing against a wall and then flipping the wall and the mm-hmm. person so that you actually, it looks like you're going through. Oh, and yeah. and, and I, I was going to do a lot of these um, and because E4 was asking for um, entries into a competition. Right. And so I, I animated a couple on Flash just as, as samples of what could be done. Mm-hmm. And I did this one in the garden with a mattress. And then I never send it away. Oh. And I, I don't know why I didn't send it away. I just, it's the, the deadline passed and I, I was happy with it. I put it out on, online. Yeah. I never did anything with it. I, mm. Yeah, I think, you, I, I think there's definitely like a massive demand for like just cl- clever things you can do. Mm. Clever short form ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and sticky online. I think that it's, um, yeah. it seems to me that like for somebody who, um, started in animation in the 80s or the you know the mm-hmm. early 90s um you seem to have like a pretty good grasp of like what's current and like what people are going to love right now on the mm-hmm. internet and i think there's very few people of from that time who worked on richard williams and stuff mm-hmm. um who have that kind of understanding and it also mm-hmm. seems to me like you have um you're you're an earlier adopter when it comes to technology Yes. Yeah. Uh, like you do 3D animation. Yeah, yeah. You were yeah. on Despero and Valiant. You yeah. were 3D lead. Maya and uh, I'm now working on XSI, uh, and I love TV Paint and yeah. and Flash and yeah. I, I I mean, there's some things I I've always liked drawing on paper. I think TV Paint and a Cintiq beats paper for me, and that's not because I don't I don't think that paper has a, a fantastic texture and and there's a certain way of working. It's just the fact that. I can do an entire film by myself in TV mm. paint, and I can't on paper. I don't have the facilities. I don't have a rostrum camera. I don't have cells. I don't have vast amounts of paint. It costs an enormous amount of money. I can do it all. I mean, I just did a, a job for uh, Channel 4. There's a, um, a show called The Midnight Beast, and they needed... They, they contacted me at the beginning, at the end of November, and mm. they needed a 53-second animated title sequence, Disney-style, by Christmas and two additional scenes by the beginning of January. And I delivered the whole shebang in four weeks with one person to help me. And wow. I, I and it's not as good as a Disney opening yeah. sequence, but and of course I couldn't I couldn't afford for the money they had to uh, hire a background artist, so and I can't paint backgrounds, so I did it sort of um, 101 Dalmatian style, where I just did drawings and then I coloured them in. But what came out of it is a presentable piece of animation it's, yeah, it's, it's almost a minute long. oh you see it open it's with the pigeon yeah yeah, yeah. And it, but it's it is four weeks work of one person and and mm-hmm. the, I, 
I couldn't have done it any other way. So yeah. it's, you know, there's only one way of doing it. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty lazy as well. I think that's the reason why I'm uh, really interested in digital two D animation, mm -hmm. than, uh, working on pencils and paper. I mean, I think perhaps for some people still there is some value in working on paper. You can get um, more fine fine details, and it's a different process. You can mm -hmm. be slightly more expressionistic if you're using other materials like yep. inks or um, chalk or whatever. But I think that if you're doing cartoon animation, for me, there's very very few reasons to do it on mm -hmm. paper still. But I think even if you even if you are like gonna use inks or like chalk or whatever, you could still do the animation digitally and then print it off. I, the animation itself I still think it's just yeah, I, I agree it's more mm -hmm. efficient to be done like that. Unless you want to animate straight ahead in charcoals or something like yeah. that. But, um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely more efficient. I mean like I I had a little meeting I think at the Lupus because oh, yeah. mm -hmm. they might do another feature film or another long format film and they were asking me you know could I run them through TV paint versus <clears throat> doing stuff on paper like they did on the snowman mm. and I have no idea which way they're going to go but I, I wouldn't be surprised there's a nice guy called uh, Pete Dodd who did a yeah, test yeah, animation yeah. I saw it's it looked, actually it's fantastic it, it looks so it lovely it looks like it's scanned it looks like it's drawn on paper and scanned it's, mm. and the other thing is that I, and I, I, I do have friends that don't like going over to digital and the reason is that it's not the same as as drawing and i always think that if if, if you grow up as a child and you use with you stick crayons on the back of rolled up old wallpaper and then somebody gives you a really nice pencil and a really nice piece of sort of slightly grainy paper and you do your first mark and you say that's not the same as a crayon on the back of a wallpaper mm. you never get anywhere yeah, yeah, and yeah. so and so, of course, drawing on a Cintiq has is nothing has nothing to do with drawing on paper. I mean, for starters, I I use the the resistance of the paper, the the, the coarseness, as my guide as to how much power to put in to do a circle, for example, or to do any shape. I can't do that on a Cintiq because it's a piece of glass. So I wear a glove and I use the friction between my glove and the the, the screen, and I use my entire I, I I move my entire hand instead of moving just my fingers. So I do draw differently. I, I my, the process of drawing on a Cintiq is totally different from how I draw on paper. Right. But it's neither better nor worse. It's just different and. And once you get better at it, <clears throat> hey presto. Mm. As, and so, uh, when did you start working digitally? Uh, I mean, I think my first digital film was Valiant. Okay. Where it was just CGI, and I mean, I said to the producer, I've never worked on a, on Maya before, but um, you know, I said, give me a try. If I can't hack it in two weeks, you can fire me. And and he said, no worries, we will. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and then I found out it wasn't very difficult because it's because uh, you 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 don't need to know very much about the program in order to be able to animate uh, to start with. Yeah, and were you were you just animating straight keys or were you using the graph editor? And uh, I was using the graph editor pretty quickly. Okay. I mean, the, for starters, the first scene I did was very messy, and then I just uh, there's a guy called Alan Sperling, who worked for Pixar before, <clears throat> who just said, "How would you do this if you drew it?" And I said, "Well, I, this is a walk cycle." I said, "I'd do my passing positions and my." My um, uh, my touchdown positions, and then I I I'd work my way through the rest. And he said, "Why don't you just do that here?" And so I the first walk cycle it was a very stiff one where I only had passing positions and and contact positions. But by then pushing some of the elements to to make overlaps, you very very quickly have a very organized scene that only has clusters of keys, mm. uh, so that you can actually fix it. The biggest problem is, yeah. of course, that if you if you key everywhere, you have no chance of fixing anything. Mm. 
And so you just learn to be slightly more organized. I mean, stuff you've already learned when you drew, because you don't start with every drawing, you start with every fourth or, or eighth drawing. Mm. And then, so you you have to organize your, your animation that way. And it's the same with CG. And so when you made the move into CG, is that because there wasn't working 2D animation or was it just something you wanted to try? I didn't really want to try it, but this was a chance to work on another feature film. And, um, and I actually quite liked, I mean, a friend of mine, Neil Ross, had done some artwork for it and it looked like a fun project. Mm. I mean, it looked like fun because they actually, the Germans actually did use falcons in the Second World War to intercept carrier pigeons that mm. were carrying messages which I think is a ludicrous concept and it was so funny in itself that I just yeah. thought, I mean, I wouldn't mind. And it's a pretty cheap film. I still quite like the humour in it. It's very yeah. show uh-huh. style humour, but, um, I mean, it's nothing spectacular. Mm. Right. Uh, but it was fun because uh, working out in Ealing was fun, okay. even though it meant motorbiking over there every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but the studio is lovely and I really like the director. Gary Chapman, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I got Richard Purdom a job. I didn't get him the job. They were looking for an animation director. I suggested him, and he got the job. And so we became a little team where any of the stuff that was too complex for him to handle on the computer systems, I just helped him with. And so we became really good friends. Mm, that, sounds, that, sounds, that sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and, did you, uh, and was there a lot of 2D people at that time who were chastising you or... Um, no? No, not really. How did people respond from the 2D animation community in London when they heard that you were moving into 3D? Um, I don't know. They, I mean, they, for, for starters, some of the people that I used to work with before, like Uli, for example, were already starting to slip into 3D world themselves. So by the time I actually came out the other end on Valiant, he um, had done a couple of 3D commercials. <clears throat> and the nice thing about, what, about it was I could just hop straight on and do a couple for him because I now knew the system. Mm. And so there were a lot of people, in, at least in the commercials field, that, that made the jump. Um, I, um, I mean, a lot of the uh, people that were purely 2D moved away in the great exodus when uh, um, Amblin packed up in, in Acton and went over. That was, I don't know, it was somewhere... The great exodus. Well, it's just because that was amazing because Disney suddenly recruited and and Dreamers were doing the Prince of Egypt and there was a real war of even getting assistance from each other. Yeah, I heard who was we talking to mm-hmm. recently, and they were saying that like there was like a real Disney was trying to like uh, poach or Dreamers were trying to poach Disney eyes, and they were getting like crazy amounts of money yeah, yeah. to go and yeah, work yeah. on the Prince of Egypt, like. Mm-hmm. Like, like, kind of, I'm, I'm work on Wall Street, kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, really, be an assistant. On yeah, Prince yeah. Of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. You must have had to have been pretty good to be an assistant on Prince of Egypt, though. I imagine. Do you think? Or? Yeah, I, I mean, the thing is that it is, it is quite challenging work, mm. and, uh, and I mean, I guess that there was, there were a lot of good assistants in, in London because, because of the amount of commercials that were being made, and the fact that you had to be able to work in almost any style. And you know, hop between studios, and then uh, the experience from Roger Rabbit and um, and the Thief, where of course a lot of people were trained up from being. I mean, like you know, I know people who used to be illustrators. They used to just do illustrations, and and they now make their money from assisting. And as there's less and less assistants around, and as two D is sort of up and coming again, like Justine, the the lady I did. Uh, the pirates with mm. I mean she's constantly busy I mean I, I, I got her to um, clean up some of my pigeon drawings but she had to do it over Christmas because there's no other time mm. so it's you know I think so you think that it, it, it did kind of uh, go down a bit and now it's on the way up again I think 2D is on the way, way up yeah 
So, so there was a period where it genuinely was like quite um, a bit of a wasteland in terms of work. Or... Yeah, I mean, that, that's why I guess that for a while I didn't do any 2D work at all. So okay. like, I mean, uh, pretty much between, I mean, even the bit between Valiant and Despero yeah. was a mixture of 2D commercials and the, the mostly 3D commercials. Right. Like there's a, <clears throat> the Sky campaign and the Domesto stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of 3D stuff. Okay, and why do you think that it's had a resurgence? Is that because people are discovering digital 2D stuff? Or? I guess so. I guess it, it is just looking fashion. more interesting these days, the, yeah. the, 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 the output, because you can just mix things in. Yeah. But also I think that because everyone is doing 3D, so you have 3D commercials, you have um, Blue Sky and Pixar and, and DreamWorks producing, and then Disney producing 3D movies, uh, the market is saturated with it. Yeah. And I have the feeling that, um, I mean, people still like drawings. I mean, I... The reason why I get such a kick out of 2D animation is that it's the only way... In any animation field, you move something around. So if you have uh, stop-motion animation, you have a puppet and you move the puppet. CG, you have a rig character and you move the rig character. Cut out, you've got a piece of paper, you move the piece of paper. In drawn animation, you throw away drawing one and you do a totally new thing. Mm. So it's like there's no no molecule from drawing one is in drawing two. And that's... It's, it's the ultimate cheat, and that's why I like it so much. And I think that you can do things that you pretty much can't do in, in 3D. And I, I, I hope people just see that and think, and think, oh, I like the look of that, and uh, go for it. And, uh, yeah, that is really interesting. I never really thought of it in, in that way. Um, but was you not tempted to go over to uh, America and work on any of these kind of projects? Um, I guess... I mean, I really liked London at the time. I was I mean, because I just moved to London, and I just mm. loved it here. And my girlfriend, of course, from Canada, uh, had moved to London, and we had our house together. I just thought, do I really want to up stumps and go over there? Mm. And I mean, I, I thought that again after I worked in Paranorman, there was the offer of moving over to Portland, which is more difficult because Portland is a one horse town. It's a, mm. if if you don't work for Leica, there is no other studio really. Mm. And so I always worried that if you know, if at some point I've, I've had enough, I, I don't think I would because it's, it's a pretty amazing place, but but uh, it, there's nowhere else to go and then it's just basically coming back again. Whereas in London, there have been times where I've had enough of working for a specific studio or a specific job and you just go, I'm glad it's over. Like it's, At the end of almost every um, feature film, I go, fantastic, and now I love a break and just do short format mm, things yeah. for a while. Uh, so I don't have to worry about this like long format stuff and then by the time I've done three or four commercials I'm happy to go back on a feature film mm. but you can't do that if, if there's only one yeah. you know one mm. show going Was you in Portland for Paranorman? Yeah I, w- oh. I went over twice for a month each time okay. uh, For I did two sequences I've ordered two sequences and um, the first one I actually did the rough board in Portland then finished it in London mm. and then I did the rough board in London and finished it in Portland oh, okay. and, uh, and then I just did a couple of movie bits and I've really liked that film. I really did like Paranormal. Yeah, it's a. I mean, it's it's all Chris Chris Butler who worked also worked at Richard Perlman's production oh, okay. on the Mr. Bean series. It's 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 his story and it's his idea and it's just a, an amazing thing. They just they they took his idea and they just let him run with it. Mm. And I think it's a lovely film. Yeah, has it done very well? Um, I don't think it's done as well as other things. I, th- I think it will ultimately make its money back. Okay, and. Uh, I think they're just a studio that's still sort of finding its feet. And yeah. what I think is nice to a degree, it's probably also problematic, I don't know, but what's nice is the fact that they are financed from within. It's 
yeah. Travis's dad has all the money and that means that they don't have to you wouldn't believe you go to a distributor and they want to change your film immediately mm. they don't have they don't have to go through that they they make the films they want to make and hopefully at some point they'll be successful enough mm. that they can actually make a you know a go of it they've made some amazing stuff yeah and mm. the new one box troll box trolls looks amazing it's yeah. really good yeah uh, yeah I, yeah I, I'm really Inju- like excited by their kind of like prospect. Yeah. Are you, mean, have you done anything on box trolls? No, no, I haven't. But there's this 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 I just bought and read Anya's Ghost by Vera Brosko. She's a storyboard artist at Leica. Ah, okay. And this uh, is this is almost like a sister piece to uh, Paranorman, which right. is it, it's it's slightly darker, I think. Is it, is it no darker? Brow? Yeah, it's, it's it's slightly more going towards the horror movie thing, but it's it's okay. really very nice. Is it a no brow piece? Uh, I don't know. Anya's ghost, what to say oh, on, no, the, no, on the no, spine? It's, um, it's oh, first. zero one, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a, uh, it's a lovely story, and uh, yeah, she's one of the board artists there, and uh, and uh, they've got a bunch of really good people. And and it has that feel of uh, paranormal. To this one, yeah, it's a, it's another ghost story, but it's uh, it's they're very similar. They almost it's not the same. It's not even a related story, but mm-hmm. it has. It has the same flavor. Yeah, so yeah, sort of, yeah. Either one of, of them probably has inspired the other. I don't know. Right, yeah. We're going to have some big podcast notes at the end of this. <laughs> there's like, there's yeah, so yeah. much interesting stuff that we can go you've got You've got an amazing memory, actually. I have yeah. To say. You can, yeah, you can yeah. recall a lot of this stuff much yeah. quicker than I ever can. Um, I was going to ask you, you don't have a mobile? No, I don't. Wow, really? Um, uh, why, why don't you have a mobile? I, at the beginning, it was that I just didn't care for one. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then the more the world got taken over by mobile technology, the more I started disliking them. Okay. And it's, it, but there's, because, it's, because there's so much technology you obviously have adopted, but yes, like, uh, yeah. smartphones, or I mean, mobile phones generally. Yeah. yeah. I've never really liked telephones, that's the thing. I, and I definitely don't want to be phoned by somebody somewhere out there. But it's just the fact that... that Telephones are very unkind creatures, which which basically means if the telephone rang right now, because it only rings about six times and then the answer machine kicks mm. in, I would just suddenly run away yeah. and, uh, and and answer it. That's, you know, that's unavoidable, but it's not very nice. Mm. And if you have a mobile phone, that happens everywhere. And and I've been interrupted in the best possible jokes I told. <laughs> so so I lost the punchline due to a stupid mobile phone. But it's it's just that I've actually figured out that I don't need it at all, which means that I... I don't think I've ever lost a job no. uh, or was unavailable for something because I don't have a mobile. People leave messages on an answer machine uh-huh. or email me. And um, there's once been a, um, an occasion where I got on the wrong train down to Tunbridge Wells that wouldn't stop because I didn't make an announcement. Mm-hmm. And Sharon was waiting for me at London Bridge and she literally waited for an hour. Okay. I mean, all the time for me to go to Tunbridge Wells and back. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, but that's the only time ever that I wished I'd had a mobile. And if I had a mobile, I wouldn't have been able to phone her because she doesn't have one. <laughs> so, so, so it's basically it's a, it is now happening however that I can't I can't get certain services because I don't have a mobile phone I was trying to sign up for one of those zip cars okay. I can't go. have one because they can't ring me while I'm driving uh, and I kept asking her you're not allowed to, allowed to ring, ring me while I'm driving <laughs> um, and the other thing is that I like renting um, canal boats and it looks like the next time I'll have a canal boat I'll have to give them a, a contact a, number yeah. like drug dealers probably just have it for the trip and then check it yeah. out yes. yes exactly yeah. and also but you can uh, like with smartphones now they have little animation packages and stuff oh I'm sure I mean the, the, once the, the stylus gets better, better on an iPad I might even be interested in one of those yeah. 
But uh, uh, I, I just, I've got a laptop that, I mean, we've got one between us, so Sharon's taking it to Canada. Mm. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I just don't no, know. No, I think that it's, I think it's very, uh, I, I kind of I love that, actually. More and more I'm thinking about, um, we were talking to Ant Blades about this, mm. about how when you have a smartphone, uh, you don't ever have time for yourself because you always, anytime you have like, a moment where you don't have anything to do, you don't stop and think. You just look down your phone and check mm-hmm. your emails, or mm. look at the I don't know news, or yeah. And he was saying it was getting in the way of like sketchbooking on the train or something like that. Mm-hmm. You just end up just flicking through Instagram, and, al- and also just uh, letting his mind wander. Mm. And yeah, about stuff. yeah, that's I right. Yeah, that's definitely a valid point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I when I when I first moved to London, I didn't uh, have a smartphone. I had a regular mobile phone. Um, it was just I think it was one of those Nokia's where it's you know like green and like you know it's got those got the big text on it and stuff. Uh, I was really pleased with it and it wasn't anything valuable and I could you know I could drop it in the toilet and you know I, I wouldn't have anything to lose. But then I did lose a job because I didn't get back to them All right. uh, quickly mm. enough. I didn't email them back. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that was a point where I didn't have any money. <laughs> I really needed the job. Yeah. And so next time, you know, like next time I had a bit of cash, I bought one. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think it's 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 really inspiring that you cannot have a mobile phone and still be functional. Like, yeah. No, it works so far. In this day and age. The other thing is that the, the nice thing is it teaches you punctuality because I don't have an excuse and I can't I can't mm. suddenly ring. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm always trying to be somewhere in time. That I mean that I'm sure there'll be a point where I have to get a, a pay as you go one just yeah. in order to, just to have get it. a higher car or something like that. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I don't have a car either. So when we go away on holiday, like we picked one up in uh, Inverness a couple of months ago, and the woman wanted a contact telephone number we finally gave her the number of the cleaner in the cottage we were staying mm. and that was fine <laughs> but we didn't tell her it was the cleaner's number we just, we just gave her a number <laughs> and of course they don't try to ring you if you if you return the car on time yeah. you know no one it's bothers no yeah. sure. but, so uh, uh, what, what are you working on uh, at the moment I'm um, working at Studio AKA oh really okay. yeah. oh right is it on the HSBC uh, no it's uh, Steve Small's got a small small uh, job going <laughs> and I think it's a, it's a job for online it's mostly Flash but the scene I'm doing at the moment is, is so involved that we've decided to make it look like Flash, but it's actually exercise like CGI. Oh, really? So it's a, it's it's very very flat colors and very very nice and very funny. Oh, okay. Cool. So uh, that'll be fun. And then it looks like they might have something um, following on from this one going into March, so I might be there for a couple of months. Oh, okay. So. You're you're probably due in another feature film, aren't you? You've, um... That'd be nice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I there well, there is. I think there's a couple of things, uh, gossips going around, but I have no idea like they, um, if anything is happening. So, mm-hmm. but I, I wouldn't mind another feature. It's and you wouldn't mind doing another three D feature? Or... No, not at all. I mean, to be frank, it'd be nice to get some more storyboarding work because okay. Chan Chan storyboarded I think three or four um, of the Tim Burton features, uh, right. and uh, and I very much enjoyed storyboarding because mm-hmm. it's like. I mean, when I was younger and I was into animation being as fluid as possible, that's one of the curses, by the way, of being a, a classically trained animator, is that you, you uh, Dick Williams always used to say, two's work but one's shine. 
um, I used to always think that I had to stick everything on once. And then at some point I decided that there were so many people doing amazing stuff by just leaving the bits in the middle out mm-hmm. and doing things on twos and threes and fours and the Japanese do it all yeah. the time. Well, I discovered threes recently. And yes. It's amazing. And, and, and so I then basically started to embrace that and just, you know, there's a, the, the job, which the graffiti job, for example, is all oh, yeah. threes. And it doesn't really matter because it, it works perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you quickly find out if you just do a drawing every second or half a second um, and you cover vast amount of time basically you suddenly just like sketching out a minute and a half mm. how much fun that can be yeah. so storyboarding I really enjoyed I, uh, I, I, I prefer twos and threes to be honest to watch I don't mm. know whether it's just like because I've uh, because I'm an animator and I've spent a lot of time thinking about that kind of thing and I'm just used to it but it feels like it's just got a bit more bite to it mm-hmm. kind of texture if it's Mm. Um, if it's twos and threes. I mean, there's a wonderful thing that we did on... Uh, there's a job that AKA did for a, a, an almond almond milk product. And that was CG. Oh, it's out at the moment, isn't it? I think so. It's, it's, it's like it's, a squirrel or something. No, no, no. no. Oh. This is, this is, it's for, it's, I think it's for America. And I did a test animation for it, uh, for the pitch. And I did the test animation in Flash. And it was on singles, but it was all just shapes moving. So it's like it was extremely... Well, it was it was just it was just it was it almost looked like it was three D because I, I stuck to all the volumes and stuff like that. They decided to do it in three D because uh, that way changes could be made that you can't really make oh, in yeah. flash, like for example, you know, change the camera angle or whatever. Mm. And um, they kept it on twos. And the amazing thing about it is that because the steps are bigger, mm. uh, it's much more forgiving. So, I, for example, I did a, a couple of walk cycles, which I. I was happy with, but I wasn't ecstatic about. But I was trying to get sort of a walk cycle out every day mm. so for background characters. So that at the end of the week, I had five walk cycles. And then somebody said, oh, we're probably going to do it all on twos. So I went in, set a keyframe on every other frame, and then set XSI to stepped. And it all looked perfect. Mm. The little tiny inaccuracies, the bits where the timing didn't quite work and, mm. and things weren't quite coming around on a proper arc, mm. like seeing from the side, they all disappeared because the steps were large enough and they were roughly in the right place mm-hmm. and it looked like it was all properly done. So I just thought, it is too. Tools are more forgiving. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they give you... They basically, the, the audience generates the in-betweens in their brain. Mm-hmm. And those in-betweens are perfect. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, it worked very well. I very much liked it. I, yeah, I, th- I still think that there is something about um, uh, 2D as opposed to 3D when you... Uh, animate that things can be slightly off or slightly wrong like mm. with 3D everything's always a perfect arc yeah. and I, I don't know if it's something that, that exists in any 3D package but I'd like to just have a button which when you finish animating you just fuck it up a little bit I don't oh know, right I think there is something <laughs> like that like where you because yeah. um, I remember working with Max Vandenberg and he was telling me about um, this tutorial or something by DreamWorks animator and there's something where like you animate something almost like you would in a symbol in in Flash, and then afterwards you can kind of animate that bit of animation, and it kind of it messes up some arc stuff, which actually yeah. happens naturally in, yeah. in life, and that yeah. kind of makes it quite realistic. And there was the, the example was like someone jumping over a, a box or something, mm-hmm. and it looked it was like really beautiful, but it was because I think they messed up some of the the arcs a bit afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So it definitely makes sense. I know you can get it with modelling. Yeah. You can just like break it and make yeah, everything yeah. like slightly messy. Um, there was one other question I had, which was, so for somebody who's been able to serve, survey 24 years of animation in London, uh, do you, have you noticed a difference in the character or the quality of people coming 
into the industry um, then as opposed to now? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the, when I first started, there were so few people doing animation. For starters, because there was so much work involved, that uh, a lot of the people that you found were people that had totally different jobs. So they would either, they were sort of, you know, unpaid artists or musicians or whatever. And on the side, they would animate or assist. So anything below uh, the assistant, uh, sorry, the animation level, the animators level at Dick Williams, there were all people that had all sorts of interests. There was a wild mix of people. Right. Uh, and none of them were particularly serious about the subject. They right. were doing what they were doing well, mm. uh, but they had other interests. But this was a way to make money. Mm. Animation has become a lot more serious. A lot more professionalized. Absolutely. And the people, the young people you bump into, I mean, my jaw fell to the floor when I started work on Despero and I had, I mean, most of the kids were from Gobelins. Yeah. Mm. There was one guy from Super Infocom. There was an experienced Italian animator and one Spanish guy. But the the quality of the animation... Was Amador Diaz? Was he... he wasn't work, working okay. for me, but I, I know him. Yeah. Uh, no, I had the guy called Bart, and the okay. lovely um, Joanna. Who, oh, Bart, uh, was it? Bart, uh, Bart, was he from the Goblin? Yes, yeah. yeah he was amazing. Wicked, he just yeah. raced through footage. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I had a team of people that, I mean, they frightened me, honestly. Mm-hmm. They were absolutely amazing. And they were dead dead serious and, and dead committed and delivered on time. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's become a very, very professional um, industry. And do you think that that translates to people being too serious like outside of work as well? Do you think people have less fun? Mm, I don't know. I mean, we might have had a little bit too much fun. There was a hell of a lot of <laughs> drinking going on at the time. Which I actually, thought, certainly thought so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that um, I actually like what's happened to animation. Uh, the, the stuff that's coming out now, because I'm on juries all the time, like other mm. bar, I once was on a BAFTA jury and stuff, Every year, the quality of the output goes up. Really? Because there's always there's always another player. I mean, now it's uh, what's this uh, animation workshop in in, in Denmark uh, yeah, that are producing yeah. amazing looking stuff. There's you mm-hmm. guys, but this this the, the quality just goes up. People do things where I no longer go. That's very nicely done. I could do something like this if I tried really hard. They do things where I go. This is so amazing. It, it just blows me away. Oh, so great. and it happens all the time now. That's and, great. I mean, the last the last jury, the bar pre-selection jury, where you have to watch. That's the British we, Animation Awards. Yeah, and I think we, it's just pre-selection, so you literally just you, you give you get given everything that has mm. a hope. So there were something like 50, 40 or fifty films. Wow. And and I and and it's, it's the typical thing. You have sort of stretches where there's a dearth of quality, but yeah. most of it, I was just amazed. I was amazed yeah. that. Like really, really, really sophisticated stuff, and and very uh, mature stuff. Like where you have stuff that that's no longer trying to shine on just one level. Like oh, look how well I can animate, but mm. but the whole thing is around it something that works. Mm. So, yeah, that's great. So do you get you get a bunch of DVDs and then you sit on your sofa at home and just watch? Yeah, I think we got half the like. half the DVDs we got given here and watched, and then we reviewed those, and then we watched the other half. Um, in the studio okay. uh, together, so I think we I think we had about thirty or so to start with. And how does how does it work? You, do you watch all of every single film? Yeah, we watch okay. all the films, and then in this case it was a jury of four or mm-hmm. pre-selection jury of four, and then you you basically just discuss them and you give them a, a yes, uh, no, or maybe, mm-hmm. and um, and then all the yeses and maybes then get discussed further. And there's some people who will always really like one film that the others don't get, yeah. and you have to nail it down onto about a two-hour program, because that program will then be shown to the judges. Yeah. 
So at an average of uh, between 5 and 10 minutes, I guess you end up with about 20, 25 films that make it into the final selection. Maybe mm -hmm. it's just 15 films, uh, mm -hmm. depending on the length. Mm -hmm. Because anything longer really just can't be digested. Mm -hmm. And then they have to nail it, like uh, boil it down to, I think, three of which one is the winner. And mm. um, yeah, so pre-selection is fun because you get to see a lot of stuff. It's also um, you have a hangover afterwards. I mean, because yeah. your your brain is not just the fact that you have to watch so many things. You have to try and remember them. You have to try and find something interesting in them, and you have to try to like give people a chance that have done something neat that isn't quite there yet. Mm. Versus people who have just totally nailed it because mm. because it's comparing oranges and, and apples. I mean, mm. some of the short films are done by teams of 20 or 30 people in a college where an entire team gets thrown at it yeah. and others are done by one person um, yeah. and you've got to, mm. you know, got to be fair. Mm. Yeah, so it, it, I mean it's like looking from the outside in, uh, we made a, we released a film in March um, that's been doing the festival around so it's my first experience of submitting anything to a festival and it's such a, to me it seems like such a murky world, like mm -hmm. I don't understand who these people are who are selected. It, it, it fills me with hope that somebody like you is on the panel. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, you, you send these DVDs away and then four months later you get an email back saying you're in or you're not in. Mm. Um, and in between I have no idea what happens, what, like, who are these people, like, why do I care what they think about mm -hmm. my films? How do you get selected for that um, because you were in the BAFTA jury as well, didn't you? Say? Yeah, I mean the BAFTA jury came about because uh, uh, I, uh, I'm a friend of Tony Collingwood's mm -hmm. um, and he's got his own studio, Collingwood I am, and um, he was just basically putting a team together and because we'd spent a couple of Christmases together for big Christmas dinners, there's mm -hmm. a bunch of guys who meet up every Christmas, he just said would I be interested. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that was, that was fun, that was basically just locked in a room for a whole afternoon yeah. with a proper projection and then, you know, talk it through and discuss it. Okay, and, uh, so, there's, so there's like a big conversation that yeah. happens and certain people are, I, I assume, championing certain films. Yes, I mean, I was definitely championing one film, uh, which was totally independent, like your film, basically, independently done by two guys. Um, and um, that was, it was another one of those years where there was a big um, Ardman film coming, uh, going in. And I, I just... I just wanted at least for that little film to have a chance because I thought it was very funny and very mm -hmm. nice. And you just discuss it. You just you just talk about it. And if everybody disagrees, you won't get it in. And if, if some people see what you're trying to say, you will get it in. But it's it's interesting. It's fun. And it was just it was just a laugh basically. And do you think that it's still a relevant um, way of um, judging and promoting films like in this day and age with Vimeo and YouTube? And I've, there's certain things I've never quite got. I mean, the, the, the short category at the Academy in the States, like the Oscars, um, that's something that is so political by now that uh, if it's if there's another Disney short out, it I mean, it, it even says so on Cartoon Brew, it, it, it will get in. I mean, not that it will win, but it will yeah. at least get in. Um, it's And it's also, it's what do you judge? Like uh, in the BAFTA jury, it was filmic excellence. So that can be the way of film is put together and animated so that's the craft in everything in the models in the in the design and stuff or do you award a prize to something that's really inventive and really neat well it is the uh, film and television academy it's 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 the it's the craft behind it which is why both the BAFTAs and the Oscars have all these things like sound and editing mm -hmm. all the technical bits it's um 
that's a really difficult thing. A lot of the festivals award ideas. They basically say, is this a neat piece of work, like mm. Annecy and, and, and Bradford? And I think that's better. I think ultimately you're not judging a film by the, mm. the craft of how it's put together, but is it a neat film? And if it's crafty and well put together, fantastic. But um, mm. I, so I'm, I, I, I like the concept of some of them. I don't mm. like the concept of all of them. Right. But, uh, yeah. I, it, it's amazing to me. We, I mean, we were looking at it the other day. The first um, video went up on YouTube uh, about nine years ago. The first ever video. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, YouTube yeah. has only been around for nine years. Yeah, Vimeo, yeah. almost exactly the same, maybe a year wow. later. Yeah. Um, and that, to me, blows my mind. But it also s somehow explains how... I mean, I, I've been feeling, like, over the last year that the film festivals feel kind of like important in a way that I think it's 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 good for people to congregate in one area, especially animators to get out and meet people and be forced to sit down in a dark room and watch a film the whole way through. Um, but uh, but but the power that they have in promoting people and making or breaking people's careers, I felt to be slightly questionable mm -hmm. um, in in light of this uh, this this you know explosion of films online. Um, but yeah, knowing that that's only such a recent development kind of shows why those things I think are still so yeah, yeah. prevalent and important. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think the it it really goes boils down to like what is the reason for you making your film? Like, mm -hmm. do you want? It has to be judged on its own terms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think like if if it's just about making something to show people, then there's no festival in the world that can compete with. The audience you'll get it online, no, you know, like, mm. yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, I think that's it. I think it's really what you want to get out of making something, yeah. yeah. And the other thing is that the festivals are slightly self serving because, of course, the, most of the people that go there are people who are interested in animation, yeah. So, most of the people that go there are animators, mm -hmm. so you got um, you know, that's why all the screenings are totally packed in honesty. Mm -hmm. Whereas online, I think you do reach people who have no interest in animation, mm -hmm. but then they suddenly receive an email saying, I found something funny, mm -hmm. and there is a, is a short film that really tickles your fancy and that everybody can. I mean, like, a, my sister keeps showing me things on her smartphone yeah. of like a little animation of a pig trying to get a cookie off the top of a fridge. Mm -hmm. Very nice film, nothing particularly inventive but yeah. something that really tickled her fancy yeah and that she showed me so yeah. uh, I, I think obama's elf would probably never win a bafta but <laughs> no, no, it's too but short. It's, uh, but it's great you know and like i think if, no, it's definitely like, it's amazing it's got a different place in culture doesn't yeah, it? yeah yeah and I, I think that that's the kind of uh, the other thing is that willing to make a throwaway i think is quite nice yeah. the fact that i you know it took three hours to do and i don't really? care if anyone likes it i really yeah, don't yeah. And so if somebody does like it, it's a wonderful surprise, but it's not as if I was risking a disappointment. Mm. So it's, it's a total yeah. throwaway thing. Mm. And, and I'll, you know, if I have another idea, I'll do another throwaway yeah. thing. It's a, yeah. So you, it's not something that you think, like, I'm just I'm going to make sure I'm going to be producing this stuff. It's just I have an idea, I'm just going to make it and yeah. throw it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing is that if I, maybe I should be more focused. I mean, at the moment, there's still enough work for me. So I've got mm. stuff to do during the day. And if I have an idea in the evening, I just noodle around mm. until I find it's, you know, it's working and then I stick it online. But it's, it's, it's funny. It sounds like a nice place to be, to be honest. No, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. But then, I, we, you know, we've met with at least one animator uh, who then has turned that into a career for himself. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
I know someone who went to school with a guy and he's yeah would make these little throwaway animation things and he was mm-hmm. he's hated by his teachers on his course because he wasn't making the kind of things they thought he should be but he's made a career online because he's sort of noticed that these things do go viral or whatever and get mm-hmm. millions of hits and that's a way of generating revenue through advertising but then also makes like putting him to the forefront of uh big clients who would then want him to produce stuff, content for him directly. And yeah. Oh, is that something you've thought about exploring? Yeah, I mean, Simon Tolfield did it, of course. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, Simon's yeah, Cats. Yeah, and, yeah. and that did not, not just become a sort of an internet phenomenon, mm-hmm. but it's now, it's a proper industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was, I was thinking, I mean, like, I had an idea, and I, I don't know, I, I did this little bit of animation, and it's actually, I have it. It's uh, Stephen Hawking sitting in his chair, and mm. he just blinks, looks left and right, and his finger does this on the mm. little button, and the, the intensity of the screen changes. That's all there is to it, mm. because every Mac has a has the, the voice generator that can mm. talk like this about the yeah. universe. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, if I have a really good writer that can write inane monologue, mm. that, mm. that because, of course, everything Stephen Hawking says is profound, mm. yeah, yeah. but not everything he thinks can possibly be profound. No, there must true. be... There must be the odd, just mm. mad thought in there as well. Mm. And to just write these little interior monologues mm. and then literally just have the same image with a flickering screen uh, play. And mm. so no animation needs to be done, it just needs mm. to be edited. Yeah. A little bit like um, some grey bloke, uh, which yeah, I find yeah. very funny and yeah. I don't know, if, I don't know what, how much of an industry it is. But I never found somebody who could consistently come up with good enough material. Maybe I should st- start so, writing it myself, but I... I mm. I, I just I haven't started yet. But yes, I like the idea of finding... I mean, um, do you know Sydney Padua? Because um, she's done it. She's like She was working on Despero, and she uh, showed me one day this thing that she wanted to do, which is a, um, a fairy detective in London in Victorian times that solves right. fairy crime. Her drawings are spectacularly good. She's an amazing draftswoman. I found the concept a little bit weird, mm. uh, but then knowing that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was into fairies or thought yeah. they existed, yeah. you know, there, there might have been something behind it. And then at some anniversary about uh, uh, Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage, she did an illustration of Babbage and Lovelace, mm. which then turned into an online comic called 2D Goggles, which is, do you know Babbage? Babbage is the inventor of the difference engine, sort of a steampunk Victorian inventor of a massive... Mm. Uh, mechanical computer and Ada Lovelace is the first programmer basically she wrote code on cards that would operate the difference engine and he made the the two into a crime fighting duo she made the two into the <laughs> and so Ada Lovelace is smoking a pipe and and Babbage uh, hates street musicians all of which is true but it's become such a hit online that um, she's been given money by I think Cape Jonathan Cape Publishing oh, yeah. to make it into a book Wow. And so, so she found her following online, mm. and the stuff is truly brilliant. I mean, it's really mm. quite bizarre. And uh, there's enough people interested in her stuff that it's already for sure fire bet that the book will sell. And yeah. I don't know when she's going to bring it out, but uh, I think that's a fantastic way to go. Yeah, there's that guy who was it called Dinosaurs or something? He, he drew this panel. Dinosaur comics. Yeah, he drew. Is like, that it's called Dinosaur? I think so. Like that, yeah. He drew like a panel of, or had these I- images of these comics like 10 years ago and he was... It's three some, panels, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. And it's always the same every single time. And he, every day he writes a new bit of dialogue for them to say and he's been doing it every day for something like 10 years. So it's the same drawing? Same drawing. Same oh, exactly like what you're talking about with the Stephen Hawking. <laughs> yeah. And he's, and he, I think 
there's a really good in- interview with him. There's a good podcast called, uh, called Make It and Tell Everybody, and he mm-hmm. gets interviewed on that. And um, it's quite interesting. And like, I mean, listen to it, and he, he talks about how he's kind of explored. Uh, making an industry out of that and selling mm-hmm. merchandise and then I think he now writes Adventure Time the, co- the comics oh right yes uh, yeah and uh, yeah exactly like um, you were talking about with this other book yeah yeah I think it's something you should definitely explore yeah I mean I wouldn't mind doing it I like I mean I, I'm really tempted to do a graphic novel at some point because mm, yeah. it's because you can do it all yourself you can mm-hmm. just you sit there and you work on it and mm-hmm. you can get out exactly what you want to get out mm-hmm. and I've I've read some Amazing ones recently. There's a there's a book called uh, Hair Shirt. Oh yeah, I really love that. I just yeah. I love everything about that book. Mm, and then yeah. I don't know that that uh, I think he's Belgian. Manu Larsene, a guy who did uh, Ordinary uh, Victories, uh, and that just blew me away. Oh, just well, I have seen that. Yeah, tell yeah, yeah. Super super simple drawings. Yeah, little sort of bubbly noses yeah, yeah. and stuff. And it just looks like it's just a funny silly comic of a guy who smokes too much dope. But it's one of the most profound books I've ever read. I mean, right. just. And astonishing. I mean, and unfortunately, out of print. I've tried to get a because I've given away so many copies that I can't. I, I'll give you my copy, but I can't. Uh, I need to, you know, keep hold of the last <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. But it's uh, yeah, amazing stuff. Mm. Yeah, it is great when you find a comic um, that other people haven't read. Especially, I get it with European comics quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, they just haven't really been released over here. And there's a period when none of them were even translated um, or published over here. Mm. Um, but yeah, when you find something like that, it's still such a gem because quite a lot of the time it's not available online or mm-hmm. anything. You really have to go and still dig it out. And yeah, get it. there's one I really want to read called George Clooney's, and it's mental. It's it's done by um, I think he's an animator or he works in animation, but he started doing these comics, and um, it's the writing is like I think. French kind of slang from the 90s so it just cannot be translated oh, right. it just doesn't make sense and it's only kind of funny if you know that kind of slang yeah and um, I met him at Annecy and I was like oh like because I love the drawings and I was gonna I was gonna buy the book but then I was hoping that maybe they were um, get an English translation or whatever and then I spoke to him and the just before I left and he was like I just don't think it's possible and I was like mm-hmm. I should have bought a copy yeah <laughs> yeah I think, uh, yeah, that's probably uh, good yeah. to, uh, to wrap it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. thanks so much for uh, well, talking to us. Well, thanks for talking to coffee. me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 It's it absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right, goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Yeah.